Good morning to you. Welcome to Citadel Square. If you're new, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Uh, if you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it? Uh, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you, a black one. Uh, if you don't have one, that's our gift to you. Go ahead and take it. And uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 8. So if you got a Bible, like I said, Luke chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Where we're going to be here this morning is uh, a little bit of, we almost catch Jesus mid-sentence. Uh, because when you teach this section in Luke, you've got to spend time on the parable of the soils. Uh, were, you, were you sufficiently convicted with the parable of the soils last week? Gosh, I think we all, like God had something to say, I think, for all of us as we looked at the parable of the soils. If you weren't with us, Jesus just finished in Luke chapter 8. Uh, we ended last week right about verse... Um, what do we say? Verse 15. And we talked about the parable of the soils, where there was the, the word of God, the sower goes out with the seed, the seed was the word of God, and uh, it went out and it fell on four different soils, the hardened soil, the rocky soil, the soil with thorns, and ultimately the soil that produced good fruit. So what Jesus is going to do here today is we're going to continue this theme of the word going out and Jesus's ministry being defined, uh, like he said last week, with that very important uh, soils parable. But today he's going to continue and he's going to shift the story a little bit into two more illustrations that give us, kind of round out the picture for us when we come to our understanding of what it means for us to know, hear, and obey the Word of God. Uh, if you were to take these three images, you, what you're going to have here, taking them together, the soils last week, you're going to have the image of a lamp, and then you're going to have a, an image of a family. Uh, and all of us, I think what Jesus is doing in these parables is showing us very three big, very important things about our spiritual life. Uh, number one, the parable of the soils really shows us the inevitability of our Christian life, the inevitability of anybody's spiritual life. If you get on 26 going west, you are inevitably going to reach Columbia. Amen? You get on 95, you are headed to D.C. Uh, there's a certain uh, path and highway to our spiritual lives, to where our spiritual lives, we have decisions, we make choices, we believe truths, we avoid lies, we uh, exercise wisdom in the decisions we made, and all of those things create for us our life. Our life will have a certain trajectory to it as we make those decisions. Obviously not free from pain, and obviously not free from the situations we face in life with family and relationships and work and just cars break down and uh, all sorts of stuff that happens as a result of being uh, in Christ and walking with him through life. But otherwise, our lives really take on that uh, trajectory to it. That you are headed, when you come to faith in Christ, you are secured and sealed for a life of eternity with God in the future. Amen? That's what the gospel says. Now, these next two are important because they round out for us our spiritual lives. Our spiritual lives are more than just a destination and more than just a pathway. Our spiritual lives are characterized by insight that is given from God. That when we come to God's word and we have an encounter with Jesus Christ and we by faith, through grace, put our trust in Jesus, we learn things not only about ourselves but about God, man, sin, creation, redemption, life in the sinful world, eternity, life, heaven, hell, eternity to come, all of those things, right? We, we gain a, a set of glasses that we put on and we're able to navigate life more clearly. We understand why we're here. We understand where we come from. We understand where we're going. We understand how to live life while we're here. We have certain insight. But then there's one more that Jesus is going to give you toward the end of our time together. 
And uh, this is probably the most beautiful picture that Jesus gives, perhaps the most encouraging one in the three. But all of us, when we come to faith in Christ, aren't just on a trajectory toward a destination, and we don't just have new information in our lives, but our relationship with Christ changes us. We gain what the Bible calls is a new identity, don't we? We now move from orphans into adoption. We, all, we move from uh, being a part of the kingdom of darkness to now being a kingdom of God's dear son. So there's a real element of family that happens as a result of our adoption into the faith. So those two are really what we're going to look at today. We talked about the inevitability last week, but we're going to talk about the insight and the intimacy. Those two are what you're going to see here in these two stories that Jesus gives to us. And they're really, really important for your Christian life in terms of how you understand yourself, how you understand God, and really how you understand what it means to hear and obey. All right, you with me? Let's pray, and we'll ask God for his grace. Father, for these few minutes, as we look into your word, we pray that we might gain a greater understanding of who we are, that we might gain a greater understanding of who you are, that as we uh, come here this morning, we aspire to hear and obey. And I pray that what you would have to teach us through your spirit in these few verses uh, might shape our hearts. They might shape the relationships in our lives. They might shape the uh, morality decisions that many are facing here this morning, that I myself am even facing this morning. That we might choose to hear and obey, and that you would give us courage to do that, that you would give us a greater understanding of what's at stake when we make those decisions. And Father, ultimately, that through your spirit and through your word, you would minister to the hearts of those who are in this room here today. That you would encourage the brokenhearted, that you would help the weak, that you would admonish those who need to be exhorted into godliness. And that we would submit our lives and put them into your hands for you to do things that uh, only you can do because, Father, we come to you uh, weak and dependent apart from you working through your word and through your spirit in our lives and hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Luke chapter 8, verse 16. Y'all there? Good. Shh, just be quiet. I'm going to talk. You be quiet. Luke 8, verse 16. Now, like I said, mid-breath. So you've got, the, uh, you've got the parable of the soils, right? We leave that parable of the soils with Jesus saying, a hundredfold. You see verse 15? Hearing the word, holding it fast in an honest and good heart, they bear fruit with patience. Now, here's illustration number two, verse 16. No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar. I mean, that's brilliant, isn't it? Jesus just makes it plain. No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, even better, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. So the image that you have immediately is uh, a lamp that is used correctly and a lamp that is used incorrectly, right? A right way to use a lamp and a wrong way to use a lamp. But both of them are tied to what the relative purpose is of a lamp, right? We have to determine the purpose of the lamp before we know how to use it correctly. Now, when Jesus gives us the beginning of this illustration, he's communicating something important as he flows now through the uh, sower and seed 
parable into this one, he's letting us know that there's a appropriateness to how light is used. Now, a lot of commentators, when they read this, they have a couple of different interpretations. Uh, when Jesus uses the lamp, he'll use the lamp illustration multiple times. Even later on in the, in the New Testament, a lamp will be used to refer to the word of God in 2 Peter. Uh, Jesus calls John a lamp that shined for a little while. Just in a few chapters, over in Luke 11, Jesus will talk about the eye being the lamp of the body. So when Jesus uses the illustration, it's an illustration with multiple uh, layers. And it's got to be interpreted in context so that we, we need to ask a question, well, what is the lamp and what does it mean to use a lamp appropriately and what does it mean to use a lamp inappropriately, right? Uh, same thing. When Jesus starts the soil's parable, nobody knows what he's talking about until he gives you the key of understanding what he's talking about in the seed being the word of God. Now here, he's going to do the same thing. He's going to give you the image of this lamp, and he says nobody does this with a lamp. The purpose of a lamp is to get, provide illumination. Well, duh, I'm sure you couldn't learn that at any other church than our church here this morning. So I'm glad you were here to learn that. But why does Jesus give us this illustration? There's two, typically, that commentators uh, will put forth. The first is this, that they say this is an interpretation of what the life of a disciple looks like. That when you come to faith and you trust in Christ and you hear and begin to obey his word and what you are given is now the light of God's word and you are meant now to display that and to put that forth into every single place that you go under creation. You are a carrier of the light and the truth of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's a part of what a Christian is. Jesus will tell the disciples in John that you are the light of the world. Paul will tell the Philippians that you shine like lights in the world. Jesus will say this in the Sermon on the Mount over in Matthew chapter 5. Here's what Matthew chapter 5 says. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So is that what Jesus is saying here? You wouldn't be far off. I think it lines up with what happens in Matthew 5, but I'm not convinced. I don't think that's Jesus' point. Now, hang with me. The second way commentators look at this text as they interpret it as the light being Jesus, which I think fits the previous context and will fit what we're about to see. What helps us in understanding what Jesus is talking about here is the fact that light has only been used one time so far in the book of Luke. You know that? Keep your finger there in Luke 8 and turn back with me to Luke 2. Let me show you where light shows up for the very first time in the book of Luke. Luke 2 Verse 29, and we're looking at the, uh, the presentation of Jesus in the temple. And uh, there's a man, let's look at verse 25, Luke 2, 20, 2, 20, 2, 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said this. Now watch his prophecy. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. 
a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. There's the first time that Jesus Christ in the temple as a baby is declared to be both the salvation, the revelation, and light for the Gentiles. Why is that so important to Luke's story? Well, Luke's gospel is the gospel to the Gentiles. It's the gospel to the outsider. It's the gospel to those who don't know Christ. The gospel to those who don't have the background. The gospel to those who don't have the religious upbringing. Now come back to Luke chapter 8. So when Jesus says, nobody lights a lamp and hides it, he's saying, I think, something very particular about his ministry at this time in this place. Not to mention the fact that Jesus calls himself the light multiple times, right? I am the light of the world is what he'll say. Over in John 9, he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John 12, Jesus says, the light is among you a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So if Jesus calls himself the light of the world, my, think, my guess is that what Jesus is saying here is that the ministry of Jesus Christ, just like the word of God in the seed, Jesus is now saying my ministry is like light. God has chosen to turn the lights on in my ministry, in the things that I am saying, in the things that I am communicating to. And the goal of this ministry is not to be hidden. Jesus has come at a very particular time, at a very particular place to be able to communicate who God is, what he is like, and what he has to say about sin, salvation, salvation, redemption, forgiveness of sins, right? So now, here's Jesus saying, nobody uses a lamp this way, and God doesn't use lamps this way. God isn't trying to be quiet and secretive. When the second person of the Trinity shows up in the hometown of Nazareth, picks up the Bible, quotes from Isaiah, and said, hey, it's me. Jesus is not trying to be quiet at this point. Jesus is saying, the light has been lit. The lamp is on. We're not concealing it anymore. I am who I say I am. Now, one of the things that you saw in the parable of the soils was that the parable of the soils took time, right? You got to sow the seed. You got to wait for rain. You got to see it sprouts. You got to see whether or not it produces fruit. You got to see if it dies, if the thorns choke it, if it gets dried up. You got to wait. In the similar way, Jesus is going to introduce the element of time. So as the light is turned on, everybody, we said this last week, is responding to Jesus. Everybody is responding to the light that they have been given. So keep this in mind. Jesus' ministry is like a lamp, illuminating spiritual truths for us to understand. And let's look at the next verse that helps explain the spiritual truth that is in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. So, when you turn on a light, you can then see. Spiritual truth number two, isn't that good? I mean, we're just dropping hammers today. Jesus is just being very, very clear with us, right? But he's saying something important about his ministry and the truth that he is giving. If the truth is in Jesus and when God turns on the light and points to his son and his son is now able to rightly interpret the world and rightly interpret life, he gives insight that can be received nowhere else. You know, a lot of us, for a lot of us, life is obscure to us. Do you recognize that? That you don't know what she's thinking. 
You don't know why they're making the decisions they are. You don't know what's going to happen at work. You don't know why they said that thing to you. You don't know why there's traffic. So much of our lives is lived with massive obscurity where we don't understand a lot of the things. Have you ever try to explain somebody the complexity of your life that is made up of hopes and dreams and fears and sins and struggles and truth and try to go, let's talk about the complexity that is me. We are even secret to ourselves sometimes. We don't know. Do you know why you do what you do? Paul, even Paul doesn't. So our lives are lived, for the most part, in massive amounts of obscurity, in limited understanding, where we can't see and understand what's happening in our own heart, in our closest relationships, in our families, in our work, with our money, in our ambitions, in our education. There's so much where we don't understand, and we're left to try to figure it out. But when Jesus tells us that nothing is hidden, that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. He's letting us know that nothing is secret to Jesus. Amen? Nothing is hidden to Jesus. Jesus never says, I don't know. Never. He understands everything completely and perfectly about you because he made you and knit you together in your mother's womb. He understands every sin, every struggle, every situation. There's no season of life that Jesus does not understand. There's no current struggle in this room that for you it might be a knot in your chest that Jesus doesn't perfectly understand and empathize with you in. Do you know that? So when God turns on the light in Jesus Christ and Jesus says, nothing is hidden, nothing is secret to me. How many times has Jesus read thoughts in this book so far? At least two that we know of. With the woman, the sinful woman and the Pharisee who was having that inner dialogue with himself with the, with the uh, sinful leaders who were around the paralytic let down through the, the uh, roof. So when Jesus says the light is turned on, when God has given to us the light of Jesus Christ to understand life correctly, then what Jesus is saying is that ultimately every spiritual truth is second to his. Do you, do you understand that? I want to make that clear. When Jesus speaks, it is absolutely in accordance with reality, both heavenly and earthly. There is no lack of clarity in Jesus, which means any theological system, any world religion, that proposes to have an answer for sin, salvation, death, forgiveness, ultimately has to be and will be ultimately evaluated by Jesus. Do you see the future element here in this text? Jesus is momentarily giving light. But one day, the man with the eyes like flames of fire and feet with burnished bronze will evaluate and look over everything. You know what the truth is about Jesus? When you get to the book of Revelation, he perfectly evaluates every single church precisely with what their problems are. He gives perfect encouragement, perfect rebuke, perfect insight. He is not confused Nothing is hidden. There is no sin, no hypocrisy, no misunderstanding that is any challenge to Jesus. And Jesus is saying when the word of God is preached 
It doesn't just provide momentary light, but there's coming a time when it will provide ultimate light, where everything in your life will ultimately be seen in the white hot holiness of God's person. And every situation and every season will be interpreted and judged perfectly by Jesus. Paul tells us in Romans that the secrets of men will be judged in Christ Jesus. That every careless thought will be judged by Jesus. Every careless word will be judged by Jesus. Here's how Hebrews puts it when it comes to the word of God. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Can you divide that? The word can. It can get right down in the middle. Joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. A lot of times we stop there in talking about the word of God, but verse 13 in Hebrews, verse, uh, Hebrews 4.13 is very important. No creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom we must give account. No matter who you are, ultimately your life will be evaluated by Jesus Christ. Your life doesn't just have a trajectory. Over your life stands the judge of all of the earth. That means... Every tweet will be evaluated by Jesus. Every Instagram post will be evaluated by Jesus. Every Facebook comment will be evaluated. Even the YouTube comments will be evaluated by Jesus Christ. Every post, every thought, every, every careless word, everything ultimately will come face to face with the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. Now, why does that matter here? Okay. Jesus, we get it. You're the light of the world. And Jesus, you know everything and nothing is secret to you. I get that. But why would Jesus give it here? Well, I think in part to let us know that when Jesus, when God turns on the light by giving us Jesus Christ, there are no neutral spiritual ideas. Because spiritual ideas don't fundamentally work on whether or not they give us good feelings or bad feelings. Spiritual truth doesn't fundamentally work if it's pragmatically effective in your life. Spiritual realities, when God turns the light on, Jesus, on in Jesus Christ, have to do with what is lies and what is truth. Do you know that? That our entire Christian life is asking the question, is it true? Does it accord with God's word? I'm feeling this right now. How does that accord with God's word? Isn't that frustrating? That God has the right to ask you why you are feeling the way you are feeling? The key spiritual metric for the life of the Christian is whether or not it is true. Even my own personal sanctification at this moment in time in 2023 is facing challenges because there are certain realities of unbelief that live in my heart that need to be confronted with the truth of God's word and therefore come to a crisis of faith. Do you know that? Do you really believe that God works all things for the good of those who love him? No. Why not? Because you haven't worked that verse into the crisis in your life right now. And neither have I, right? We're all at that seesaw of sanctification, of unbelief getting confronted by the truth of God's word. Knowing that God has purposes for us, knowing that he can work in these situations, but right now it feels like a crisis of unbelief because we don't really believe 
that he's actually working for our good. How about my power is made perfect in weakness? You like that verse? No, I don't either. Why? Because I don't like being weak. I don't like being dependent. I know I need to be, I know I ought to be, but I like independent. I like selective dependence. That's what I like, which is really independence because I get to choose when I'm dependent. But I don't like being exposed and vulnerable and, and sinful and in need of grace, right? For God to say, it's my grace that's sufficient for you, not your relative well-being, your current understanding of things, or the fact that you can put two and two and make four in your work. No, it's my grace that's sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. See, we're all in process, aren't we? We're all in pride. There are certain things that I am believing right now that are lies from the pit of hell that need to be confronted with the truth of God's word and washed and changed and shaped in me because I'm wired down to my heart with broken ideas and broken beliefs and broken loves. That all lives inside. And the promise of hearing and obeying and what Jesus has been saying in this is that when Jesus comes on the scene, he turns on the light. See, for many of you in this room, you know what that's like. You remember what it's like to walk in darkness. And when somebody shared the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ with you, you remember when the lights came on. You remember when you discovered, man, I'm a control freak. A control freak. I'm an idolater. I'm an adulterer at the level of my heart. I have come face to face with the white hot purity of the holiness of God and I have no hope. And all of a sudden when someone presented Jesus to you, you now saw life totally differently. Where once you had lots of pride in your accomplishments, now you realize you were a sinner in need of saving. Amen? That's the story for lots of us in the room, that God in his grace turned on the lights for us and showed us Christ. Where we didn't know him, we didn't want him, we didn't understand him. But God chose to turn the lights on for us and all of a sudden our world changed and we recognize there's coming a time when everything will be evaluated in the light of his holiness. So if you weren't shaking in your boots a little bit with the soils, when Jesus says, I'm the light, he's pressing the issue of hearing and obeying. Why? Well, look at verse 18. He says the same thing in 18 that he said back in verse 8. Take care then how you hear. Essentially, it's therefore... And literally, it's see. It's the Greek word to look, to pay attention to. This would be a, a great, you need a tattoo? This would be a great tattoo. Watch how you hear. Jesus. I don't know. I'm just, I'm dreaming. I'm not ready for a tattoo yet. Maybe when I grow up. Jesus says, pay attention to how you hear. Well, why? Because there's coming a day when your hearing and obeying of the truth of God will actually lay over your life and you will be evaluated by the truth of God's word. So if Jesus has come and God has turned on the lights, then why wouldn't we pay more attention to the truth that Jesus has given us? Now, when he says, take care then how you hear, what he's going to give us is in fact another element, another promise, another certainty connected 
to this warning that we might hear and pay attention. Here's how he explains it. Look at the remainder of the verse. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. So on one hand, Jesus is the light of the world. And there will be no secrets, no hypocrisy, no secret sins that will ever get away from being evaluated by Jesus Christ himself. Therefore, he says, be careful how you hear. For, and this is a promise, this is fascinating to me that Jesus connects this to light right here. For, to the one who has, has what? What would I have in the context of an illustration about a a lamp? Light, thank you. To one who has the light that has been revealed in Jesus Christ, to the one who receives the message of Jesus Christ, more will be given. Now, don't miss what Jesus just said. Therefore, be careful how you hear. How should I hear? I need to hear with obedience. I need to connect my obeying, not just to my listening. That was what created the fruit in the parable of the soils, right? To the one who hears and obeys and holds it fast in a good good heart, he bears fruit with patience. She bears fruit with patience. Now here, to the one who has, more will be given. Well, that's interesting. Being careful how I hear, hearing and obeying, is tied to being given more. As you know, a lot of folks think that, uh, that more revelation is given to the people who listen to the most podcasts. More revelation is given to the people who can sing the, you know, the, uh, all the songs of the Bible. More revelation is given to people who come to church. More revelation is given to people who live a good life. More revelation is given to people who are successful. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says more revelation is given to who? The people who hear correctly, which means the people who obey correctly. If you want, listen, you want to grow in your relationship with God this year? It's not journaling. It's obeying. Do you want to take the next step of spiritual depth in knowing who Jesus Christ is? How he loves you and has saved you and has a purpose for you and knows where you are and what you're struggling with and what your difficulties are and your, and your sin struggles, your sanctification journey. Do you want to grow and have more light and more understanding of God and who he is? Make it your ambition to obey. Because this is a promise from Jesus Christ that when the light is turned on and you are willing to hear and obey, more will be given. This is why old saints are so necessary in the church. Because they have been obeying for a long time. Can you be old and foolish? Okay. But the old saints who've walked with God, who have a peace that transcends understanding, who've been through the seasons of life and difficulties of life in a sinful world, what you are watching is an individual who has been transformed, like 2 Corinthians says, from one degree of glory to another. Do you want to grow? Obey. You know what my problem is? My problem is not the lack of not Like, my problem in my life is not the lack of knowledge I have about Ezekiel. My problem is all the stuff I know that I don't obey. Amen, Christians? 
gosh, all the ways in which I need to be, uh, be kind to one another. Gosh, man, really still? Be tender-hearted. Ugh. Persevering. I mean, I know those verses are in there. You know those verses are in there. But if I make it my ambition not just to learn good things about God, not just know some things that I hear on a podcast, not to go, man, I didn't understand the the breakdown of the chapters and verses of the book of Numbers, but to go, God, how do you want, God, what are you saying in my life right now about my greed? God, what are you saying in my life right now about my shopping problem? What are you saying right now in my life about how my tongue is being used? What are you saying right now about the worries that live inside in my heart? God, would you give me the courage and the strength to do what you say? You hear me? This is so important to your Christian life. If you want more of Christ in your life, It's not going out and sitting under a tree. It is doing the prayerful, patient, persistent, diligent, hard work of asking God to help you obey. Jesus says, more will be given. Not only that, to the one who has not. This is great. To the one who has not, in context, who doesn't have it? People with no light. People who don't believe in Christ. People who have lives where the word falls and trampled and is trampled and eaten up by birds. Even what he thinks he has, which means he doesn't have it, but he thinks he does. I had coffee with a friend of mine. This is a couple years ago. We went to a coffee shop over here in downtown Charleston. I had a guy come up and started talking to us about, man, all sorts of Egypt and Coptic readings and Mormonism and Jehovah's wit. He had like, he had like the wheel of world religions and he would just pick one and just start picking stuff off and start talking about it. And he was so well-read and well-versed in all of these world religions and theories and ideas and spiritual ideas, but he didn't have Christ. Now, did he think he was fine? Of course, he thought he was great. He thought life was wonderful. He thought it was great to think about all these world religions and the things they had to offer, but he didn't have Christ. And there's coming a time when you don't have Christ, everything that you have believed, every lie that you have put your faith in, every system of world religion that you've trusted for your future and your eternity will crumble to ash, will be taken away, and you'll be left in darkness. So the Bible is real clear. It's Christ or nothing. Even what he has will get taken away. Now, that's your lamp illustration. There's one more promise, one more illustration that Jesus gives us here. One more certainty, really. And it's connected to the faithful hearing and obeying. He's going to say it at the end of this passage. But before we get to it, let me ask you, like, you came in here today, and you were like, I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to sing, and I'm going to hear God's word, and I'm going to sing, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper in a little bit. Uh, What do you think the greatest, if you had to sit down across from somebody today, right now, you get up from here, you go, and you sit down across from a cup of coffee with them. And they ask you, what do you think the greatest blessing is for those who hear and obey God's word? 
Now, a lot of times when somebody asks that question, we're asking really a gospel kind of question, right? And you might, you might come up with all sorts of things. Ah, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, you might come up with a peace that surpasses understanding. You might, all sorts of kind of things. But a lot of times that question, that, well, Steve, why should I obey? See, well, I know you're telling me to. I know Jesus says it, but like, is my life going to get any better? And a lot of times that question is asked in the context of a culture that has massive amounts of idolatry. Would you agree that our culture has lots of idolatry to pick from? Yeah, it sure it, sure it does. And people, why, what is the greatest blessing, Steve? Are you telling me, Steve, that if I hear and obey Jesus' word, maybe uh, I'll get more money? Now, you can, let me tell you, in my line of work, you can make a lot of money answering that question with money. Steve, maybe, I'll, maybe if I tithe, things at work will go well. Maybe, Steve, if I give above and beyond and I give a, a seed, of a, I'll send you a magic washcloth wiped from my face and you'll be making double what you did from last year to this year. Maybe you'll get the promotion. Maybe you'll succeed. Maybe you'll have mo the most financial success than you've ever had before. And a lot of people go, oh, I, I'd like that. So let's, let's obey. I'll obey. I'll hear and obey. And God will be the gumball machine and he'll give me lots of money. Maybe you hear that question. And you go, maybe if I hear and obey God, that I'll get the feelings that I really want to feel, that I'll have good vibes, that they'll, they'll live in my heart, I'll kind of be zen about my problems, kind of like Jesus was. He always floated four inches off the ground, had great hair, healing people. Maybe that'll be my life. I won't have as much stress in my life if I hear and obey God. Does God just take away magically, take away stress, take away? We just become emotionless Vulcans. Remember what a Vulcan is? is anybody, who knows what a Vulcan is? Okay, 10 of you. Watch Star Trek. Is that what is the opportunity for us? If it's not money, maybe it's just good peaceful feelings on the inside. Now, I'm not minimizing the fact that you can have peace that surpasses understanding by submitting your prayers and supplications to God. Amen? But that isn't necessarily the greatest, greatest blessing of hearing and obeying. What about pragmatism? I want stuff to work better. If I hear and obey, will I have cars that don't break down? Will I magically lose that pesky 10 pounds? Will I be able to not have this problem with my ankles? Is that what we're looking at? Well, I'll just, I'll get all the green lights. Well, no, we laugh at those, but inherent to a lot of our Christian understanding, a lot of our upbringing, even a lot of the lies that you believe in the car when you're by yourself is like, God, why did I hit all the reds? I'm hearing and obeying. Amen? Right? You do that like I do that. And a lot of us as Jesus followers, we come to a conversation like this and we go, ah, we will know things that nobody else will know. We are reformed. Because we hear and obey. We have insight that all these junior hires don't have. We know things about God that nobody else knows. <laughs> we know is that the goal? Smart. What I want to show you is, is the opportunity and the blessing, perhaps one of the greatest and deepest spiritual realities that you can receive as coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Jesus does it in such a funny way. It's almost a throwaway three verses here. 
We started this chapter with a group of people who uh, came to Jesus and started orienting their lives around him. Remember that? The 12, and then we had the three, the multiple women who've been saved from their, from their past, and now we're supporting the ministry that was going on. Well, we've seen those people connected to Jesus up to this point, but in these few verses, we're going to be introduced to people we haven't seen since the beginning of the book, and what Jesus is going to do is clarify the community of people that are being drawn around him who are willing to hear and obey. Look at verse 19. Then his mother and brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. Now imagine, just for a second, you're famous. I mean like famous, famous. Like Taylor Swift famous. Okay? Tom Brady famous. Michael Jackson famous. And your mom and your brothers, hey, we want to come to the show. Do you think they'd get, maybe, I don't know, maybe you don't have a good relationship with your family. Pretend you do. Would they get backstage passes? Would they get into the green room? Would they get front row tickets? Why? Why would they get those blessings? Because they're connected. They're blood. You grew up in their home. You were around them your whole life. There's connection and there's relationship. And here are Jesus' mother and brothers in the midst of a crowd that's so big, nobody can get in. The last time Luke told us that somebody couldn't get in because of the crowd, you had a group of people who dug through the roof. That's how busy it is around Jesus right now. So he's massive. The popularity is skyrocketing. I have five daughters and one son. Recently, probably for the last too many months, my little one gets up about three. Because... Are you cold? No. Are you hurt? No. Are you sick? No. Did you have a bad dream? No. Are you thirsty? No. Why are you here? (laughs) I don't know. Okay, baby, come on. Let's go back up. And this has been, how long has this been? I'm I'm mucho años. Uh, Many, many months. Uh, That's years. I'm I'm mucho meses. Sorry. Long time. So I take her. I take her upstairs. I I get her to the top of the stairs, cuddle her up, give her a drink, say, baby, good night. See you in the morning. I've run upstairs now at 3 a.m. So I'm just awake enough to have a hard time going back to sleep. Well, if any of you did that, I would call 911. And I would say, how did you get in my house? And why are you waking me up with nothing to say? But my baby girl has a level of access. She has no problem opening my door at three in the morning and standing there as if she belongs there. And she has a blanket and she rubs her nose. Just staring at, not even saying anything. (laughs) Which is weird. She has access, she has familiarity that nobody else has but her. Nobody else but this little girl in my family has that kind of access. So here are Jesus' mother and brothers, and they are confronted by this crowd that won't let them in. Now, what do you think is going to happen? You think they're going to come to the front of the line. You're going to think the lady in the back who's waving her handkerchief going, I'm the Virgin Mary. 
Anybody else? Have access like I have access? Verse 20. It was told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. Verse 21, but he answered them, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. What? This is like a, this is like a lightning strike for the Jews of that day who would have been standing around. All the Jews believed that they had the right because of Abrahamic descent. They had no problems with God because they had a physical line to Abraham, the father of the faith. So that when Jesus says this, this is stunning. You ever felt like an outsider? These people aren't my people. These people like things that I don't like. These people, you know, do things that I don't do. These people have a background that I, it's not my background. Don't miss what Jesus just did here. Jesus just said, the ones with the most access, the ones with the most relationship, the ones with the most familiarity, the ones with the most intimacy with me are those who obey and, I'm sorry, are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus is creating a new family. Jesus is creating a new group of people, not based on I lived a good life, I have a lot of money, I was successful, I went to the right schools, I was from the, from the, line, from the line of Judah. Jesus explodes all of that humanistic thinking, that human presumption that me and God are good because of something I have done, some, uh, some resting and foundation of my life that secures me a good relationship with God. God says, no, no, no. Jesus says, no, no, no. My mothers and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Listen, in this church, we, when we interview people for membership, we never ask them what schools they went to. You know that? We don't ask how much money you make. We don't ask what your family was like. I mean, we care. But is that how you get into a church? What are the things we ask? We say, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith in Jesus, who is the propitiation, the wrath bearer for your sins? is your ambition to live and obey what he has spoken in his word. Have you been baptized as a profession of faith that you have put in the Son of God who died, who loved you, died for you, and is one day coming back to get you? Then come on in. You're a part of the family. What does the family call each other? Brothers and sisters. Is there any division? No Jew, no Greek, no slave, no free, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Amen? That's what Jesus just said. See, the promise on the other side of hearing and obeying is more than just pragmatic spiritual success, right? It's more than just spiritual illumination that now I know some things that nobody else knows. The promise on the other side of hearing and obeying is intimacy with Jesus Christ. A level of access and familiarity that nobody else has. Because you are willing to take him at his word and to put your faith and your trust in who he is. Here's how John puts it. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God.
So let's put these three stories together. When you hear and obey and you look at the parable of the soils, you are on a trajectory of guaranteed spiritual fruit. When you look at the lamp and you hear and obey what Jesus is saying, you are on a pathway to greater understanding in relationship with God. And when you hear and obey, you are guaranteed a spot in Christ's family to where you now have intimacy and relationship that nobody else has. And nowhere is this more clear. Guys, look, I know there are people in this church who have made that decision, whose family does not believe and obey Jesus Christ, but you have. And that is a difficult place to be. And you know that when you start talking about Jesus, they don't understand. But when you come into the body of Christ, you have brothers and sisters who go, I get what it's like to pray. I understand what it's like to walk with him. I understand what it means to have my sins forgiven. And you gain a greater understanding and a greater intimacy with those Christians than anybody else. Amen, Christians? Let's pray. Father, as we prepare our hearts for communion, we ask that you would give us the courage to hear and obey what you would have to, have to say to us. For the situations that are represented in this room of difficult seasons of life or uh, places where we need illumination, Father, would you remind us of the fact that we are a part of your family? Would you remind us of the fact that in Jesus we can understand life in ways we haven't before? Would you give us uh, clarity for those uh, difficult moments in our life even right now where we don't understand what you're doing or how you're doing it. So Father, we come to you desiring to hear and obey. Would you make that plain and clear to us? Would even now you impress upon our hearts and minds your word that might cause us to walk in your ways and to gain a greater understanding of who you are? We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. 